Game Cool Books, Episode 28, A Ritual Faithfully Followed. Welcome back. I think it's safe to say that any similarity between the title of Chapter 20, Mortal Kombat, and that of the epochal video game of the same name, spelled with a K instead of a C, and pronounced Mortal Kombat, of course, and so influential that as of this writing, Google Docs still thinks Pullman and I are spelling it wrong. Any similarity is probably coincidental. And yet, it was potentially an important one from a marketing perspective. The images conjured by that title, and not disappointed by the content of the chapter, are violence and carnage and blood. Mortal Kombat was one of the first representations at that time of realistic, quote-unquote, bloodshed in a video game, and it spawned countless imitations, pushing that medium into ever more graphic territory. As we've seen, violence and death are represented with shocking frankness in Pullman's work as well, if not so sensationally, with hints of comic book or cinematic choreography and zest. Yet, the image, and it's a beautiful one, chosen for the U.S. release of the book is of Lyra and Pan atop Yorick's back, looking around with a mix of determination and wonder. It was important for little savages like me coming to the book from more medieval Tolkien or Tolkien-esque fantasy to know from the table of contents that sooner or later there would be some serious fighting. At any rate, that was one of the first things my dad pointed out when he gave me the book to make sure that I wasn't put off by the cover. The narrator begins this time telling us matter-of-factly, fights between bears were common and the subject of much ritual. For a bear to kill another was rare, though, and when that happened it was usually by accident, or when one bear mistook the signals from another, as in the case of Yorick Birnison. Cases of straightforward murder, like Yofer's killing of his own father, were rarer still. But occasionally there came circumstances in which the only way of settling a dispute was a fight to the death, and for that a whole ceremonial was prescribed. The tone is important here, as it doesn't sensationalize the combat, but points up the ritual element as something valid and dignified, a tested way of settling otherwise impossible to settle disputes. It also reminds us that both Yorick and Eofer have fought and killed other bears before, outside the prescribed ceremony, and it lets us know that, however fearsome they may appear, such killing is not usual among the bears. So these two are both outliers, though they stand at opposite extremes in many ways, and thus they're usually unusually prepared for such a combat, and well-matched. At Yofer's orders, though in one sense they contravene the expected way of dealing with an exile, an unbear like Yorick, the weight of tradition swings into effect without apparent questioning. The ceremonial battlegrounds, the king's armor and his claws, are all set in readiness. Yorick is placed clearly in the role of David to Yofor's Goliath. As their size difference, which Lyra noticed on first seeing Yofor on his throne, is repeatedly drawn attention to, as is the fact of Yorick's lack of rest and food 
and in his rather different pre-fight regimen. As Lyra seeks reassurance, she's disappointed. Even Pantalaimon, who could normally cheer her up, had little to say that was hopeful. All she could do was consult the alethiometer. He is an hour away, it told her, and again, she must trust him, and, this was harder to read, she even thought it was rebuking her for asking the same question twice. That rebuke from the alethiometer suggests, of course, personality behind its answers, and it's particularly interesting as it's paired with Lyra's impatience and angst about Yorick's arrival, qualities which would normally make it difficult to read the instrument from what we're told about the state of mind that's required. Presumably, she's able to partition away such feelings from the actual activity of reading. Perhaps her experience dialoguing with Pan, who shares her thoughts and feelings, yet without total overlap between them, has helped prepare her all along for such anxious yet calm reading. Here, we're told how he usually can cheer her up, something we have seen when she was seasick, for instance, though the most dramatic instance of this will occur at the very end of the story. In a similar vein to the alethiometer's rebuke, we hear that among the bears crowding around the perimeter of the combat ground, separate areas are set up for the she-bears, and that evidently Yofor has multiple wives. But that Lyra restrains her curiosity, as the narrator no doubt does as well, remarking, Lyra was profoundly curious about she-bears because she knew so little about them, but this was no time to wander about asking questions. In passing, Lyra's intuition about the bear's uncertainty, which she took advantage of to secure her audience with the king, is confirmed in an interesting manner. Instead, she stayed close to Yofor Rackneson and watched the courtiers around him assert their rank over the common bears from outside, and tried to guess the meaning of the various plumes and badges and tokens they all seemed to wear. Some of the highest rankings she saw carried little mannequins like Yofor's ragdoll demon, trying to curry favor, perhaps, by imitating the fashion he'd begun. She was sardonically pleased to notice that when they saw that Yofor had discarded his, they didn't know what to do with theirs. Should they throw them away? Were they out of favor now? How should they behave? Because that was the prevailing mood in his court, she was beginning to see. They weren't sure what they were. So Lyra gets to be sardonic, a word associated prior to this with Azriel and Fleece Gorsby. She gets to wonder about the meaning of decorative plumes and badges. And these demon dolls, Again, recall Yorick's explanation to Lyra about how his armor is his soul, a reminder strongly reinforced with all the contrasts made between Yorick and Yofor, particularly with respect to their armors. The bear's uncertainty about who and what they are remind me of nothing so much as Socrates in the Phaedrus, wondering whether he is a more complex creature and more puffed up with pride than Typhon, or a simpler, gentler being. In one of those rare indications of time, I wonder again if it would be possible to string them together in a coherent timeline, 
The fog had lifted by this time, and the air was clear, and as chance would have it, the brief lifting of darkness toward noon coincided with the time Lyra thought Yorick was going to arrive. The important thing does not seem to be the time itself so much as the light, however, which we'll be able to see by. And Lyra's longing here, unsated by her demon or her reading, expresses itself in wishes. As she stood shivering on a little rise of dense packed snow at the edge of the combat ground, she looked up toward the faint lightness in the sky and longed with all her heart to see a flight of ragged, elegant black shapes descending to bear her away, or to see the Aurora's hidden city, where she would be able to walk safely along those broad boulevards in the sunlight, or to see Macosta's broad arms, to smell the friendly smells of flesh and cooking that enfolded you in her presence. That last image is so unlike the other two, not a descent from or an ascent into the sky, but something resolutely ordinary and yet deeply potent seems to reveal what might be behind the rest, the desire for a mother and the love and protection that she represents. And that's not so different from Serafina Pecola's desire to be a mother. But as she recognizes that it would be to change her nature, so Lyra here seems to know that it's no good wishing. The association of images seems to move from the sky, as the link between the witch and the city, to breadth, as the link between the boulevards and the arms, and to be one of descent back down to earth, down to Pan hiding tiny and constrained in Lyra's pocket yet comforting her as best he can. The image of Yofor as a metal tower here reaches back to Babel and ahead to Lord Azriel's proud rebellion or the authorities' impenetrable fortress or both the carapace of his armor, the biological image, suggesting how brittle and superficial his strength actually is. And the sark of chain mail protecting his front, dismays Lyra to the point that she realized that she betrayed Yorick Birnison, for Yorick had nothing like it. She feels a deep sickness in her, like guilt and fear combined. But this is rather short-sighted on her part. Once again, she's not doing what the alethiometer told her. The betrayal that we've been looking for since the very beginning is not just yet. But she collects herself enough to fool Yofor one last time. Remember, I said I'd better go and speak to Yorick Birnison first and pretend. But before she could even finish her sentence, there was a roar from the bears on the watchtower. The others all knew what it meant and took it up with a triumphant excitement. They had seen Yorick. Please, Lyra said urgently, I'll fool him, you'll see. Yes, yes, go now, go and encourage him. Yofor Rachnison was hardly able to speak for rage and excitement. The rage that merely renders him inarticulate is 
ominous in light of how he will lose this fight. It is also reminiscent of Yorick's downfall, failing to master his temper when he was exiled. Crosses the swept snow, leaving little footprints, symbolic of the impression her words will make on Yorick, small in themselves, yet decisive for his strategy. The way she realizes that the watchtower must have seen him sooner being higher up looks like a deliberate allusion back to how Yorick, at his height, supposed he still had a few minutes' work left, while for Lyra, from her vantage point, the sun had already set. His appearance in a flurry of snow answers her wishes in the only way possible, as her explanation, rushed as it is, tells Yorick exactly what he needs to know. If he was worrying about her safety, or how to account for the fire hurler's restraint and the bears allowing him to approach, and most of all, how to defeat the usurper, Lyra's words suffice. In recompense, he gives her the kingly gift of her new name, or, though she's earned it for herself, his gift is to bring it to her attention. You tricked Yofor Ragnison. Yes, I made him agree that he'd fight you instead of just killing you straight off like an outcast, and the winner would be king of the bears. I had to do that because... Belacqua? No, you are Lyra Silvertongue, he said. To fight him is all I want. Come, little demon. She looked at York Bernison in his battered armor, lean and ferocious, and felt as if her heart would burst with pride. As Yorick plays along with the ruse of Lyra being his demon, so the narrator does too. Uh, with the wall of misty white of the assembled bears, we hear the nearest ones moved aside, making two lines for Yorick Bernison and his demon to walk between. So it's unclear whether the bears at this point have heard somehow that this is supposed to be a demon, or whether this is the narrator playing along for us. The image that comes next of Yorick as a dynamo, like that whiteness of the bears, recalls and transforms imagery from Volvanger, taking what was technological and cold there and making it warm and alive. Lyra's touch on Yorick's vulnerable spot at his neck recapitulates her intervention at Trollicent, though here is not to restrain him from killing, but to egg him on. With the terms, the implicit boasts and insults and overt challenges, the ritual combat begins. Each combatant's character is clearly and succinctly laid out in the stakes they define. The narrator compresses the call-and-response component of this for us once we get the idea. And to be fair, the differences between them were already abundantly clear. We might have guessed that Yorick's first order would be to tear down that palace, that perfumed house of mockery and tinsel, and hurl the gold and marble into the sea. Iron is bare metal. Gold is not. Yofor Ragnison has polluted Svalbard. I have come to cleanse it. 
His language is redolent of allegorical depictions in Spencer or Bunyan or others, the vices of luxury. His imagery of pollution and cleansing aligns him problematically with nationalist and even fascist politicians, but also with Old Testament prophets, which would seem to be the more relevant point of reference here. Gopher's reply that he drew him here will be interesting to compare again with Lord Asriel soon. His brutal ad hominem or ad baronem attack focuses on destroying Yorick's body, as Yorick has promised to destroy his palace, and on making his very name a capital crime. Thus, in this ritual faithfully followed, this formula, Lyra and the spectators and the readers all become aware of the differences in the two bears, and more abstractly, we're made aware of that awareness on the one hand, and of the types of beardom that each combatant represents. The latter is more to the point. But the talk of destinies here might remind us both of Serafina and Lee's discussion in the balloon and of its parody in the old prisoner, Centilia, who foresaw that this wave function would soon collapse. Or as the narrator puts it here, Yofor had begun to take them in one direction, and Yorick would take them in another, and in the same moment one future would close forever as the other began to unfold. Azriel will say something similar later about what happens in the many worlds at every moment, possibilities diverging. From their words and ranging about before the observers, the combat moves into its transition point. Finally, the warriors were still in silence, watching each other face to face across the width of the combat ground. In this transition point of stillness, if we're paying attention, we should already have a good idea of who will be winning such a contest. Only one of the fighters here is the true friend of ritual faithfully followed, only one is characterized by being still. Like we saw him in Lyra's fencing lesson, <laughs> but still, it's a close fight. Then with a roar and a blur of snow, both bears moved at the same moment like two great masses of rock balanced on adjoining peaks and shaken loose by an earthquake, which bound down the mountainsides, gathering speed, leaping over crevasses and knocking trees into splinters until they crash into each other so hard that both are smashed to powder and flying chips of stone. That was how the two bears came together. Pullman delights in the power of his epic similes, learned and adapted from his time teaching and reciting Homer to classes and to his own kids. Two especially ornate similes bookend the fight, the latter of which receives an echo in the acclamation of the bears once it's all over, but for the demolition of the palace. In shorter similes which punctuate the combat, the narrator maintains the pace of the action, but here 
He revels in slowing us down, almost like a slow-motion camera effect, building anticipation of the kind that led his one little boy to bite right through his water glass, startling the waiter and causing a ruckus in the restaurant. I think I've already referred to that story. But it's particularly suited to passages like these, which highlight the power of words to convey actions and to elicit equally powerful ones as responses. At the risk of belaboring the point, for all his agility and grit and guile, Lyra's words are the decisive advantage Yorick has in this fight. The collision stuns the larger Yofor, so the lithe Yorick capitalizes, but he is shaken off, as we saw him shake himself at the water's edge, and the king's fearsome strength forces a reset, straightening his bent armor like a cinema villain. Now he is the avalanche, shaking the ground so that Lyra and we feel the force of the blow, the blood flying through the air, promised by the chapter title. She presses like a token of love, a neat reversal of the chivalric convention in the romances which the knight bears a token from his lady into the joust, and an invitation to read in some elements of the beauty and beast motif here. That Sark ends up betraying Yofor, becoming a hindrance. It's not clear whether he tears it off entirely at some point or whether the chain mail continues to hamper him, like the skirt Achilles is supposed to have been dressed up in in the run-up to the Iliad, or the distaff that Hercules is supposed to wield in the course of his ignominious labors. The snow of the arena forms the breaks between panels on a comic book page. Yofor threw him off, and then the two bears were at each other again, throwing up fountains of snow that sprayed in all directions and sometimes made it hard to see who had the advantage. Lyra watched, hardly daring to breathe, and squeezing her hands together so tight it hurt. She thought she saw Yofor tearing at a wound in Yorick's belly, but that couldn't be right, because a moment later, after another convulsive explosion of snow, both bears were standing upright like boxers, and Yorick was slashing with mighty claws at Yofor's face, with Yofor hitting back just as savagely. Lyra trembled at the weight of those blows, as if a giant were swinging a sledgehammer, and that hammer were armed with five steel spikes. Iron clanged on iron, teeth crashed on teeth, Breath roared harshly, feet thundered on the hard-packed ground. The snow around was splashed with red and trodden down for yards into a crimson mud. Now we come to the climax. Yorick's armor, his soul, is intact. Lyra longs not for escape this time, but to help him. She already has, of course, but she also does it in the only way she now can, to... Do not do him the treachery of looking away, for if he looked at her, he must see her shining eyes and their love and belief, not a face hidden in cowardice or a shoulder fearfully turned away. The narrator leads us in from Lyra's point of view. Yorick with his limping left hand, his soft pats, and the taunts from the bear king. But then... He leaps to the truth, which a lithiometer like the narrative can also reveal. At the end of the series, on the acknowledgments page, 
Pullman puns on Muhammad Ali's motto, read like a butterfly, write like a bee, he says. And here he has Yorick implement Ali's other famous rope-a-dope strategy to great effect. So she looked, but her tears kept her from seeing what was really happening. And perhaps it would not have been visible to her anyway. It certainly was not seen by Yofor, because Yorick was moving backward only to find clean, dry footing and a firm rock to leap up from, and the useless left arm was really fresh and strong. He could not trick a bear, but, as Lyra had shown him, Yofor did not want to be a bear. He wanted to be a man, and Yorick was tricking him. At last he found what he wanted, a firm rock, deep anchored in the permafrost. He backed against it, tensing his legs and choosing his moment. It came when Yofor reared high above, bellowing his triumph and turning his head tauntingly toward Yorick's apparently weak left side. That was when Yorick moved. Like a wave that has been building its strength over a thousand miles of ocean, which makes little stir in the deep water, but which, when it reaches the shallows, rears itself up high into the sky, terrifying the shore-dwellers, before crashing down on the land with irresistible power, so Yorick Birnison rose up against Yofor, exploding upward from his firm footing on the dry rock, and splashing with a ferocious left hand at the exposed jaw of Yofor Rackneson. All the names he called Yorick, Yofor ends up speechless, suddenly voiceless, biteless, helpless, and like a seal at the water's edge. Indeed, like the timbers of an upturned boat, his ribs, from which Yorick does not create a mate for him, but eats his heart in the closing movement of the ritual full of legendary overtones. There's Frazier's famous study where he lays out evidence from all over the world of the importance of the sacrifice of kings. Deep mythological trope that Pullman has his bears enacting here. The most familiar instance of it to us nowadays is probably communion, the language of which Lyra seemed to draw upon for her lies to Yofor about them flowing together and being like one person <clears throat> and that rock that Yorick sought and found could well be recalled from an old psalm. Then we get the aftermath. Pandemonium, a Miltonic word, and the bears roar as of pebbles in a storm revitalizes the morose image of Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach poem. Their ornaments are thrown off, and as true bears once more, with shades of post-colonialism and the storming of the Bastille, they go to work on the palace. Lyra's shouts are amplified by Yorick to rescue the pathetic human prisoners from the general ruin, and... In his stillness, in the midst of this frenzy, Yorick has Lyra press some blood moss into his wounds. And this 
It recurs later in the series in response to Will's grievous wound. We can see a symbolic representation of what Yorick has already accomplished. We can see the power of nature, knowledge of one's nature, to heal wounds and preserve life, and maybe the way of life for people or culture. And Lyra, small and deft and desperate to help, very like her mouse demon, or in the fable, the mouse with the lion uh, from Aesop. Once more, she restrains her curiosity, figuring there's no point talking to the old professor and not bothering with the other prisoners for now, since Asriel's not among them. So she decides to keep out of the way and covers herself in snow as a bear would do. Once more, Lyra seems a little carried away by her admiration for the natures of others. Like when she wished to feel the moonlight on her skin, here she wakes from her hibernation with eyes frozen shut, too stiff to move. Did she forget Fartacorum's and Mrs. Coulter's warnings not to stop moving? Or did she simply trust the bears implicitly, now that they are back with Yorick? Anyhow, she accepts the young bear's help, riding over to reunite with Roger and hear his breathless story. Yorick Bernison made me stay out of there in the snow while he came to fetch you away, and we felt the balloon, Lyra. After you fell out, we got carried miles and miles, and then Mr. Scoresby let some more gas out, and we crashed into a mountain, and we fell down such a slope like you'd never seen. I don't know where Mr. Scoresby is now, nor the witches. There was just me and Yorick Bernison. He comes straight back this way to look for you. And they told me about his fight. As the work of establishing traditional ice block shelters goes on around them, the children get their taste of fresh seal, just as Lyra heard about back at the Royal Arctic Institute. Does blubber really taste like cream with hazelnuts? Roger followed her example, and I would too, carried away by the power of words to exceed themselves by pointing to their own limitations, to describe something warm and soft and delicious beyond imagining. Yum. The chapter closes with a huddle with the counselors to decide what's next, laying the groundwork for the end of the book. They treat Lyra as if she's a queen, that classic fairy tale wish fulfillment in simile form. And her pride is contagious, but not at all a bad thing. We learn the bears were under a kind of spell cast by Yofor and Mrs. Coulter that indeed the bear that Yorick killed had been drugged by them, and that her intentions extend to taking over Svalbard, sidestepping human laws, subverting bearish custom, setting up a bigger and worse experimental station like Wolvanger. To help foresee her plans in more detail, for the final time in the book, I believe, Lyra reads the alephiometer. She finally asks what happened to Lee and to Serafina Pecola. She hears how they were attacked in the storm by other witches, as well as the cliffcasts. She reads something of their fates, that Lee is being carried off to Nova Zemla. If he's in the air, he's safe, as Yorick remarks. And as for Serafina, we hear 
chains of airborne spies, but nothing of her well-being, of Tartars arriving by sea to aid Mrs. Coulter in her coup, and of the deeper motivations behind having Lord Asriel killed. It's coming clear now, something I never understood before, Yorick. It's why she wants to kill Lord Asriel. It's because she knows what he's going to do, and she fears it, and she wants to do it herself and gain control before he does. It must be the city in the sky. It must be. She's trying to get to it first, and now it's telling me something else. She bent over the instrument, concentrating furiously as the needle darted this way and that. It moved almost too fast to follow. Roger, looking over her shoulder, couldn't even see it stop, and was conscious only of a swift, flickering dialogue between Lyra's fingers turning the hands and the needle answering, as bewilderingly unlike language as the aurora was. Yes, she said finally, putting the instrument down in her lap and blinking and sighing as she woke out of her profound concentration. Yes, I see what it says. She's after me again. She wants something I've got, because Lord Asriel wants it too. They need it for this, for this experiment, whatever it is. She stopped there to take a deep breath. Something was troubling her, and she didn't know what it was. She was sure that this something that was so important was the Alethiander itself, because, after all, Mrs. Coulter had wanted it, and what else could it be? And yet it wasn't because the alethiometer had a different way of referring to itself, and this wasn't it. Lyra knows something's up, and yet she believes that this something must be the alethiometer. It's curious that it should be an assumption about self-reference, that is how the alethiometer refers to itself, and it's a lack of self-awareness that stumps her here. She's being insufficiently Socratic. She's neglecting to question something that she thinks that she knows. Or maybe she's just worn out. She could give up and die for the relief from care and exhaustion, but instead she again follows the example of Yorick and bucks up. So they set out on the final part of the journey to get to Lord Asriel, who's only a few hours away, before Mrs. Coulter does. But in a conspicuous phrase, Lyra feels something gone out from that reading. That's something again. Curiously, we had seen Lyra briefly from Roger's point of view there, observing her dialogue, an unlike language as the Aurora. What is that something? We will be able to give it a name soon. But for now, we take a little breather. It's time for recess. We are nearing the end of the imaginary video game adaptation. The end in one sense, because we're only approaching the beginning of it in another. I think I've learned that that's how this project works. It's a reconsideration of beginnings, continually, even as maybe only as we get more and more a sense of the whole story coming together in our mind's eye, do we return to the starting point in the sense of attempting to realize it in concrete form, in moments. The culmination of the combat mechanics for Lyra and Pan would have been back in Bolvanger, 
lashing out wildly against the men and their demons, even as they ultimately fall still, captured. I don't really count the snowball fight with the Tartar guards. I didn't really like my percussion sample for that. It wasn't really my best work, but oh well. For Lee Scoresby and Serafina Pekala, the uh, final fight would have been against the swarming cliff ghasts and the swooping witches, and the outcome at best would be their escape. We'll see one last instance in the battle with the Zeppelin to come, but once again, that mainly happens off stage, so that the nearest thing to a final boss fight you can actually win outright and thereby accomplish the progress of the story, which is how fights work in video games, it must be this ritual combat between Yofor and Yorick. And I really hope that all the way through this uh, episode I've managed to keep those two names straight. If you're playing with a friend playing along as Pan, then they'll have had to be still and small for quite a while now. But once Lyra greets Yorick with her news, that character will actually assume control of her, while the primary player will have control switch over from the girl to the bear. For, as the narrator seems to agree, in this moment she is his demon. He is somewhere he should not be, where he would normally not be permitted. And yet, in contrast to the opening of the story, Yorick makes his present known his presence known openly to all and does not save a life thereby, but proceeds to take one. Lyra's role will be important too, as she will have to keep her attention on Yorick, even though uh, there's blood spattering and even through her tears. It won't be possible to defeat Yofor head-on, and the longer the fight drags, the more he'll wear you down, so that your only hope, like in the book, is to use the knowledge that he can be tricked, and to apply it artfully. Attempts to hurl snow or rocks will be parried to little effect, tearing off parts of Yofor's armor and turning them against him as weapons might slow him down in the short term, but it won't be enough. No, to deliver the coup, he'll need to play at being weak, to give way. And then, once you reach firm footing, and he rears to taunt, to release the energy you've been storing secretly all the while. And hints to that effect might come at different stages of the fight, in the form of taunts from the Bear King, or snatches of quotation from what Lyra had said about tricking him. In the aftermath, don't forget to eat the heart for a dramatic increase in strength and to rescue the prisoners from the dungeons before the palace is too far gone. You'll, of course, have the option to go and talk to them since you get to do that sort of thing in the video game. And if you do, you might learn some interesting stories, uh, more things about the uh, various ambitions of Jofor Ragnarsson, but uh, the most interesting side story here that you'd get to play through would be Rogers, um, falling down the mountain, going kind of on a sledding trip with uh, Yorick Birnison before being ditched out somewhere out of range of the fire hurlers, presumably.
But anyway, they're delighted to be reunited, and we are almost at the final reunion with Lord Asriel that we've been looking forward to for so long. So, for now, I'll let you go, and thanks again for listening. <laughs>